0: Hi, I'm Jonathan and this is the Bosnia Project Podcast. The Bosnia Project is the chronicle of my life as a world traveler, youth worker, father and husband. The Bosnia Project is the story of how I came to live and work overseas in a country named Bosnia and Herzegovina. It's my blog, thebosniaproject.com, this podcast, and our Facebook community, and the email updates we send out to our supporters and followers. bosnia project is a process and a product all wrapped up into one thing and this podcast the blog and everything else is a way to catch all that work write it down record it and preserve it so that it can be of use to someone this is the bosnia project and it will continue for a good while longer This is the second episode in a series that attempts to answer several of the questions that people ask about Bosnia, Sarajevo, Mostar, Eastern Europe in general. We are going to talk about communism, America, atheism, religion. There's a lot of issues thrown in here together, and I hope you like it. Today's episode is called What's in a Name? and It's the story of Herzegovina and how it got this long, interesting, and confusing name. Why do we name things? All of us do it. We name our children. We name places that are memorable to us. We name periods of our lives that we remember for one reason or another. If you have a place where you had a difficult experience, you might give it a bad name. If you have a good experience somewhere, you might come up with a positive name for it. And in the future, when you talk about it, you just use that name instead of the name that everybody else uses. It's a way of asserting your point of view on the world, according to your experiences. The Romans did this with the Mediterranean Sea. They called it Our Sea because they had conquered all the land all the way around it. And they obviously felt that they were owners of the whole thing. And that's what they wanted to communicate with the naming of the sea. Their accomplishment in conquering the whole sea, not a small feat in their time. Other people called it the Syrian Sea, the Sea of the Philistines, or just the Great Sea. The Arabs called it the White Sea. All these names communicated something different about what they thought about that great big body of water. And a lot of names imply ownership, which in turn implies that a group of people obviously viewed themselves as quite important. When you call that great big body of water ours, it means you want people in your country and all around to know that you've reached a certain level of significance. So what's in a name? A name denotes identity. In the country where I live, Bosnia and Herzegovina, there's always this question people ask. What's the name and why is it so long and what does it mean exactly? Well, the way that Bosnia got its name is interesting. Everyone just says it's named after the Bosna River. But actually, the word Bosnia comes from an old word that actually means water. So at some point, far back in history, people saw the water flowing in the river and began to call the place around it the water. Or Bosna. And if you think about how life must have been thousands of years ago, it's easy to understand how important water must have been to any growing settlement. It's an incredibly important national resource. So the land, Bosna, is named after the place where the water is, with a word that just means the water. One of the hard things about the country is its long name, and people are always confused. And they inevitably ask, okay, Bosnia, but what is Herzegovina? Well, superficially, you can think of north and south. I live in the south part, which is Herzegovina. And there are a lot of things about it. It's coastal, it's dry. The air is very hot. There's lots of mountains. But what about the name? The story of Herzegovina and how the area got its name goes back to a man named Stepan. And because most of you probably speak English, I'm going to just call this guy Stephen. Stephen was born to Vukac who was a Bosnian duke over 600 years ago. His mother was named Catherine and she was of noble origin herself. So his dad was the duke and his dad had been the duke. Dukes back then were like governors. So Stephen had a good upbringing. He was well educated, well traveled, knowledgeable about the world and his young life as it went on, he was determined to make something of himself and to make his little homeland into something big. And back then, the kingdom of Bosnia was a relatively new thing. You, just, you didn't just get to call yourself a kingdom just because you wanted to. Today we think of countries like the country of Denmark, the country of Sweden. But back then there were fiefdoms and dukedoms and principalities and empires, all words meaning something slightly different. Basically, if you were a kingdom or an empire, then you were sovereign. You could do what you wanted. You were a country who wasn't underneath anybody else. In order to get sovereignty, in Europe anyway, someone had to recognize you. That someone was usually the Catholic Church at that time. That's right, after you had taken over places and raided and conquered and set up a de facto government, your king would then go and pay homage to the Pope, and the Pope would officially recognize your country as a country with all the rights and everything that a country has. Except back then, they didn't have countries, they had kingdoms and empires. And they still thought empires were okay. But that's another story. Sometimes the Pope would actually come and crown your king for you. And that's also another story. Anyway, I'm getting off topic. But then there were all these territories... That didn't quite achieve sovereignty these were the dukedoms and the principalities and they were kind of like a country but they had to pay some nearby kingdom for protection and if they didn't pay they'd get punished by the kingdom and if they weren't protected they'd probably get raided or conquered by some other kingdom so it was really just a tribute system bosnia was like a place way out in the sticks far away from Civilization, as they called it. Most of the early records we have are from about the year 1000, and they're from Hungary. So the Hungarians didn't really care about conquering or owning Bosnia. They just wanted a buffer. They wanted Bosnia to pay them some money, And they would, in return, sort of promise to sort of defend Bosnia from attack. But it really was more like they just wanted to have Bosnia so they'd have kind of a big barrier land for attackers to run over before they got to Hungary. Bosnia would be like a little fiefdom for the Hungarians until it was taken over by the Turks and then the Serbs and the Hungarians and then the Austrians all the way up until the 20th century, really. But there was this little time in history, for a couple hundred years, when Bosnia did become a kingdom itself. The guy who was able to do it, to expand Bosnia, throw off its overlords, and make Bosnia into a real kingdom, was not Stephen. It was this guy called Trtko. That's an interesting name to say. He seems like a great ruler, but this story isn't about him. It's about Stephen. So, Tretko died, and his son became king, and then he died. He didn't have sons, so he chose a cousin whose name was Thomas. Thomas was a little bit younger than Stephen, and by the time Thomas came along, Stephen was the most important duke or governor in Bosnia, and it was kind of like the new president facing off with the governor of Texas or something. It was really fierce. One of the problems was religion. See, back then there were Catholics, and there were Orthodox Christians, and there were Muslims. But the Bosnians had a church that was not Catholic, and it wasn't Orthodox. There has been serious research into this religion to figure out just what it was. The best that we can tell is that it was something of a Christian church, something that we would recognize today as fairly close to our own practice of Christianity. They had elders and deacons, but no priests, and they worked together with royalty and nobility to elect their rulers and governors. The Bosnian church had been allowed to exist because Bosnia, frankly, was out in the sticks. The Catholics, the Orthodox Church, wanted to go find these Christians and bring them into their churches, but they just didn't have the resources. Bosnia was really, really far away, and it had a lot of mountains. It was really remote, and a lot of these places were really hard to get to. That is, until King Thomas came along. Basically, Stephen considered himself a big-time defender of the Bosnian church, and he and Thomas would fight on again and off again. There were wars with each other, wars with neighboring countries, with the Muslims, disputes with Hungary, etc. And so Thomas came up with a plan that he thought would save the kingdom and give him control over Stephen once and for all. So remember, we said that Bosnia wasn't really that powerful. It was a kingdom, but it wasn't like France or Germany. And as far as Thomas goes, there were some mm, problems. One big problem was that he was what some would call a love child. His dad was the king, and his dad had a mistress. And while they had their affair, she became pregnant with Thomas. We don't even know Thomas' mother's name. The other big, big problem was that Thomas' wife was not really considered queen by the elders because she wasn't royalty. You see, you had to also be born into what they considered a royal family. In the middle of all this there was a Catholic missionary that began to come into Bosnia and meet with Thomas. Surely there had been many such visitors but for some reason this one would break through. Thomas finally converted to Catholicism. The king would be baptized into the Catholic Church later but from that moment a new thought began to creep into his mind. How to bring the Kingdom of Bosnia officially into the realm of the Catholic Church. Catholicism would bring stability, longevity, security against the quickly advancing Muslims, he thought, who were basically knocking on the door at the southern border. And it was in this mindset that he began to make a plan. Now that he had been converted, he would go and seek an audience with the church. He would go and try to improve Bosnia's standing with the church by arranging to divorce his wife, who was not Catholic and was not royalty anyway, and then he would marry someone who would be royalty, and she would convert to Catholicism. Surely, a newly converted king and a Catholic wife from a noble family would make the country more strategic and valuable in the eyes of the church, and then the Pope would direct the kingdoms around him to aid him in his squabbles with Stephen, and more importantly, they would help defend the whole place against the Muslims. This person, this woman of royal blood, Had to be the perfect person, and it had to be someone that would help him abroad and at home. And so he convinced Stephen himself to give him his daughter in marriage. Stephen would give him his only daughter, Catherine, and become the king's father in law. Catherine would convert to Catholicism, and the country would be in better standing with the church, and Stephen and Thomas could quit fighting. So let's put a pen in that story for a minute and get back to our main character, Stephen. Stephen was a Bosnian Christian, but he was sneaky. He was a deal maker. And the deals changed and overlapped so many times that it gets hard to keep track of who was aligned with who and who was really whose enemy. Stephen had no problem making deals with the Muslims who were trying to come up from Turkey and take over in Southern Europe. When they came up and started attacking, And raiding, he paid them to leave him alone. And then he paid him again and again. Of course, the last thing he wants to do is to be taken over by the Muslims. And so he knows that he has got to make peace with Thomas. So he is approached by Thomas with this crazy deal. He doesn't like the idea that Thomas is Catholic, but he knows that if he doesn't do something, he'll just keep fighting with him and then they'll both get taken over by the Muslims. And so he decides to do the deal. He gives his daughter to Thomas and becomes the father-in-law of the king. All this time, his title, the office he held, was like a duke. He sort of was in the royal family, but he never had a realistic chance of becoming king. He was like Kiefer Sutherland in Designated Survivor. If like 25 people in front of him died, he might somehow have a claim to the throne. The names for these offices are tricky. Duke is the best one that we can do. He wasn't a prince. He wasn't a lord. And so he was kind of like a duke or a governor. Grand Duke might be a better translation, but in German, it was called Herzog. By the way, anyone you know with the surname Herzog or Herzig, well, that comes from this German word for Duke. Somewhere in their past, their great-great-grand relative was a Duke somewhere in Germany or Prussia or Austria or something. So anyway, why is German important? Well, it's important because nobody knew Bosnian, and we don't have many Bosnian writings from that time, so German may have been like the lingua franca at that time, in that part of the world. And so Herzog was his title. When he went to meet with people from other countries, that was what people called him abroad. The people at home just referred to Stephen as the Duke, and the Duke was the greatest ruler that had ever been in this dukedom. He, his father, and his grandfather had succeeded in uniting all the area in the south of Bosnia, securing the border, and setting up this kind of identity for the region. And the title Herzog really identified with the region. Herzog in the Bosnian accent sounded a little different. It was like Herzeg or Erzeg. And in the language spoken in Bosnia, anything that belonged to the Herzeg was called Herzegov. So the family was Herzegov. The house was Herzegov. The horses were Herzegov, and so on. And the land, well, that was given a proper name. It became known as Herzegovina. It was like calling it Duklandia. Herzegovina. And so inside the kingdoms in the Bosnian region, this area in the south, began to have its own distinct culture, identity, and now its own name, Herzegovina. (music) The fall of Bosnia was coming. Stephen could feel it. Others could feel it. There wasn't much that was going to prevent it. The Muslim forces were advancing on the region like a huge black cloud, and nothing was going to hold them back. The only thing you could do was make deals and hope that somehow you made yourself indispensable to the Muslims when they finally decided they wanted your little fiefdom for their own. Back in that day, expanding and conquering was how you ensured security for your people. The problem was that you always needed to take and conquer more. Once you expanded, then your border needed protecting, and so you'd try to expand more, and then that border needed protecting, and so you'd expand more, and so on. The Muslims were knocking on the door, and they would frequently conduct raids where they would come and steal and kill in the Bosnian lands. This was like the precursor to a real war, and it was getting too much to handle. Stephen had been paying tributes to the Muslims for a while to leave him alone, but they clearly had the upper hand and started demanding more. So, Herzeg Stephen came up with another plan that would guarantee Herzegovina's peace. He would give them his son. <music> Stephen got married at 20 years old to a girl named Jelena a daughter of a noble family from Montenegro. They had four children, Catherine, Vlado, Vlatko, and Stephen Jr., all within six years of each other, a real young family. You already know that his daughter, Catherine, was given in marriage to King Thomas. The point was to keep the kingdom at peace so that they could fight off the invaders, and that worked out for a little while. Catherine converted to Catholicism in order to marry the King Thomas, but soon after their marriage, the Catholic Church started putting more pressure on the new royal couple to bring the rest of Bosnia into the fold. Thomas had thought changing a little bit, converting to Catholicism, would be enough to appease the church, and that's why he did it. And then he remarried and his new wife converted. But then the church continued to come in with more and more requests, Ultimately, not giving them the protection that they desired for the country. Thomas was pressured to force people to convert to Catholicism, and even though Bosnia had a long tradition of Christianity, he gave in, which again started to affect his relationship with Stephen, his new wife's father. Several priests and leaders of the Bosnian church fled to Herzegovina to escape the new persecution from Thomas in the north, and Stephen again threatened to take action. Unfortunately, the persecution would be bad news for the Bosnian church, and it would eventually disappear over the next few decades. A few years after the marriage of Catherine and King Thomas, Bosnia finally fell to the Muslims. The Islamic Ottoman Empire was fast advancing on Europe, and they were taking in more and more land every year. Serbia had been attacked from all sides, Greece, Macedonia, Montenegro, everything was going to the Muslims. And now Bosnia really had no chance of defending itself, especially as King Thomas had been persecuting his own people for the religion, or really, for the denomination. But amazingly, the little dukedom of Herzegovina was able to cut a deal with the Muslims. Stephen worked it out so that the Herzegovines could have their freedom. All he would have to do is pay tribute, which was expensive. And then he would give the Muslims one of his own sons. He decided to part with his youngest son, Stephen Jr., who would have been about 13 years old by then. It was a tough position to be in. The most powerful army in the world had come knocking and said, you had to give them your child. He couldn't give up Vlado, who by that time was ready to take over the kingdom. So he gave up little junior, about 13 years old. And the Muslims promised to educate him, train him, and give him all that he needed. But he would still be their hostage, sort of insurance against the future. It was a common practice for the Ottoman Empire, to take noble children from conquered lands and send them to the Islamic education programs and enlist them in their armies. Except, they probably didn't realize that, in Stephen Jr., they would get someone with immense talent and ability. How could they have known? He was only 13. The first thing they did was to change his name. Just like Lou Alcindor became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Stepan Herzegovic became Herzekli Ahmed Pasha, a name that meant Ahmed, the son of the Herzeg. <phone rings> They would send little Ahmed to school, and then to military school, and he would complete the officer training program with flying colors. Eventually, everyone saw that Ahmed was no normal kid. This kid was going to be great. It didn't matter where he came from, he was a great soldier, and so he grew in stature and fame throughout the Ottoman Empire as they campaigned into the north, into Serbia, and then into Bosnia. The deal had been made, the deal that kept Herzegovina free, in the year 1463. Stephen Sr. had suffered great losses to the Muslims and then negotiated his people's freedom at the cost of his son. But his son did not go quietly into the night. Stephen Jr., now Ahmed Pasha, had always had a chip on his shoulders because of the deal that his father made. And he said in his heart of hearts, One day, no matter what I have to do, I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back to my Herzegovina. It took him 20 years, but he finally made it back. Only this time, he was the great soldier, the leader of the Muslim army, come to lead his new countrymen in a campaign against his old country. He had the history, he had the desire, and he had the skill. Now he had to just step out and take it. As the leader of the world's greatest army, he came back to Herzegovina, now about 30 years old, ready for a fight. Vlado, the new Herzeg, was poorly prepared, and so, unlike his father, he would barely put up a fight. There was really no way that this tiny country could hope to defend itself, and so Vlado ran. Over the next two years, All of Herzegovina would fall to the Muslims. The son, who was given away, would come back and take the prize from his brother. Vlado disappeared, though. He wasn't killed. He left his fortress and ran away to a coastal town called Herzeg Novi. Just like the rest of Herzegovina, this small town bore the name of the Duke, the Herzeg. Herzegnovy literally means new duke, and this is where Vlado would stay until the conquest of Herzegovina was complete. When the Muslims did finally take over all of Bosnia and Herzegovina, Vlado would retreat to the Venetian island of Rab, where he would spend the rest of his life. Ahmed would retreat too. He eventually went back to Istanbul and became the Grand Admiral of the Navy. He was a great soldier, military leader, and statesman. The Herzegovine would eventually become the Grand Vizier of the Ottoman Empire, an office he held five times. This was amazing success. The idea that a foreigner would come and have this kind of success in the most advanced empire in the world was amazing. Grand Vizier was like the prime minister, like Joseph in Egypt, kind of like a combination of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Speaker of the House. But after holding this position five times, he retired and retreated from his public role. He would eventually retire to a small town named Diel on the sea. He had his estate, his servants, and it's said that he never returned to his homeland of Herzegovina. But in a way, he brought the spirit of his homeland with him. Because the spirit of his homeland was one of independence. Even though the region was part of the kingdom of Bosnia, his father was independent. He had made the deals and he was successful, and because of his great personality and his shrewdness, the land became known for him. So much so that it eventually bore his name, Herzegovina, the Duke's Land. That spirit would be recognized in Ahmed as he grew old. When Ahmed died, he was buried in the village of Deal, and a mosque was eventually built near his grave. And after his death, when the Ottomans looked back on what an immeasurable talent had passed through their ranks, they went and changed the name of that town to honor the one who had been taken from his homeland and had made his home among them. Today, you can visit that town, but it's not called Deal anymore. It's called Hersek, the Duke. I hope you've had a great summer, and I hope you'll listen again. We are starting a weekly email, which you can sign up for on my website, thebosniaproject.com. We've had monthly updates forever, but for a long time I've had the desire to go deeper and communicate more with our readers and followers. So from now on, through the end of 2019, we will start sending out weekly updates to those of you who want more. I hope this weekly email will give you a few things to think about. Here's the basic content a weekly passage of scripture with some commentary from me, a story from our experience in Eastern Europe, a private Facebook group where you can connect with me and others who are reading and thinking about this, and occasional articles and links that will help you better understand this part of the world. So sign up and get connected. I think you'll enjoy it, TheBosniaProject.com. In any case, have a great start to the school year. And we wish you all the very best this fall. Thanks for listening. This podcast was made by me, Jonathan Trousdale, using my laptop and a few gadgets and applications. If you've enjoyed this, if it's enriched your life, consider helping us keep going and doing what we do. If you'd like to donate, instructions are in the show notes in the blog post below. And it's easy to give online. All the best to you and God bless.